Welcome to The Living Classroom, where we explore the daily living of three-stream Anglicanism. I'm your host, Alan Hughes. Welcome again to The Living Classroom. We're here today with Chris Myers, and today our topic is how do we as Anglican clergymen have a robust, healthy Anglican theology? How does that play into our life? What does that look like? What is that habit and rhythm that we're living into? So, Chris, thank you for joining us. And um, really to kick us off, my first question really for you is, why does why does theology matter? I mean, if we've been trained in seminary, if we, you know, are orthodox in our beliefs, um, is that just, why does that matter to your average clergyman? Maybe that's just something for people who want to get PhDs and people are down the road. So give me a rationale of why theology matters. Well, thanks, Alan, for having me on. And it's a pleasure to be here. I'm honored to try to answer this question because it's something that I think about a lot. And hopefully I can say something that does speak uh, to the kind of person that you're talking about. I actually think, you know, the moment that we're living in when there are simultaneous and overlapping crises in our culture, uh, that might be a time when someone might even more say theology doesn't matter right now. It's all practicality. Like I just have to, it's just boots on the ground all the time. All I, all I have time for is a pragmatic. And I think this moment is actually more of a moment to step back and say, on what basis do I make decisions as a leader, as a church leader, as a clergyman? How am I you know, leading my vestry? How am I leading my people? Um, and the way that I think about it is, you know, pretty much any topic can become a, a culture war topic now. It's right. a culture war all the time. Um, and if we're going to approach those things you know, are we going to do it in an ad hoc way or are we going to have a way of thinking about it that's informed by scripture that's rooted in the tradition, the great tradition of the church and is informed by uh, wisdom and, and reason. And this is where I think theology and histor- having a historical consciousness can be so helpful because other churchmen have lived through pandemics. Other churchmen have lived through volatile times. Um, And they have prayed and thought and wrote about these things um, in a a way that can serve us and help us first by showing that we're not alone. And second, by giving us a grid by which we can make decisions in the midst of crisis. Yeah. So in a sense, uh, the guys on the front lines are thinking about the practical applications because that's what we need to do when we're leading a church. But you're saying, in those practical applications, there is a theology behind that. And either it's going to be a theology that we've thought through and, and reflected on, or it's always this sort of ad hoc, you know, what's, what's coming down the, you know, lately. And then it becomes a pragmatism instead of just dealing with practical ideas. Right. Cause obviously the, the stereotype would be you sort of choose contemplation or action and theology is for the contemplative types and that it's, it's a luxury of a certain kind of pastor. It's a luxury of um, somebody who has an academic appointment, but it has no bearing on action. Um, but that's, those are things that got divided at some point in church history that they're, they're not by, de- by definition, something that we should divide from each other. Yeah. And I, I know one of your monikers or aspirations is that pastor theologian where 
you're really trying to bring those back together. You know, um, the the academic pursuit and the practical, you know, day to day application of pastoral ministry, and somehow they got separated. And there is a healthy way to bring them back. And um, and I know that you're gifted in that, that you've thought a lot about that. But let me ask you this question: H- How would you root that your theory or your this opinion or this advice? Um, in, in scripture, what, what, it, what is that scriptural sort of whatever maybe mandate or what's the picture you get from um, the life of Jesus that really pushes us in this direction? Well, I, my mind goes to Paul. I, I can talk about Jesus, but my mind first goes to Paul. Um, honestly, in this season, I've been drawn back to the book of Galatians. And it's a deeply theological text that is aimed at an intensely practical problem, right. which is yep. here are these, this is what's going on in the church in Galatia. There's this group of people, these agitators who are coming in and what they're teaching is contrary to the gospel. And Paul can't just say, stop it. <laughs> he, he has to give them a theological framework that helps them not to just get through that crisis, but other crisis crises that will come uh, for that church down the road and for the, for the church in Memorial, we're still learning from that letter, still digging deep into it. Um, so with the structure of Paul's letters, you know, always before he gets into the practical, he always gets to the practical. He always gets to how does this pay out in terms of behavior, how I pray, how I treat others, but it's always rooted in the reality of Jesus Christ, who he is, contemplating the reality of the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. What are the long-term implications of those things? And Galatians is a particularly almost heated example of it because he's so exasperated. Right. Um, yeah. But all of his letters have that, that shape to it. I'm going to give you a, a theological framework from which to understand not just this problem, but to understand other problems that you need to come back to this center of gravity. You need to come back to the cross. You need to come back to the faith handed down, all those kinds of things. So theology begins, I think with contemplation, with beholding Christ as he is abiding with him, following him being the branches that are connected to the vine. But that then pays out in how, how we behave, how we treat others, how we love our neighbors. So yeah, I, th- I think of Paul as, you know, obviously the the pastor theologian par excellence. You know, right. And yeah. any other pastor theologian in history, it has to look to Paul because he he gave us the model. That's great. And, and, and you think about that really, in, I mean, every letter is, it's not, hey, I want to teach you theology. It's here's a theological lens to deal with with this practical issue that's on the ground. And what I'm hearing you say is that as I'm studying scripture, in a sense, I'm studying theology and it's going to develop that lens as I look at situations in my church or uh, in other people's churches, that's going to really help me deal with pastoral situations. Absolutely. And I think it actually gets you out of crisis mode eventually because you see how things are actually interconnected. And so many things come at us as, and they demand our, they, they shake us by the lapels and say, pay attention to me. And so often 
this sort of moral energy or it's presented as moral energy, but it's really anxiety. And how do you step back from, okay, I hear what you're saying. This is what I think is animating it. And I want to take a step even further back from that and say, okay, what, what is true? What is good? What is beautiful? And how do those things come to bear on, you know, what you're feeling right now, the confusion that you're feeling, the anxiety that you're feeling, the outrage that you feel, whatever the, the presenting issue is. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is a good thought theology helps me be that non-anxious presence in the midst of the chaos that every church and every pastoral crisis prevents. And I'm, I'm obviously taking that from Friedman, but yeah. good theology helps me be a non-anxious presence, not, you know, I have all the, you know, practical tools to fix this or the five steps, but I have a theological framework that allows me to stand in this situation confident on the rock that's, you know, Christ and on good theology. I love that. That's a great image. Well, let me shift, shift the question a little bit. And we've been talking a little bit about theology, but why Anglican theology? Why Anglican theology for you? What is it about Anglican theology that makes it maybe different? Or um, how, how does Anglican theology speak to people today that you think is helpful? You know, one question I'll get a lot from parishioners or, or people who are interested in Anglican tradition, they'll say, well, what is the Anglican position on X? And more often than not, you have to say, well, so-and-so who's an Anglican says this, and so-and-so who's an Anglican says this, and they're different positions. So it's not, when we talk about Anglican theology, it's not necessarily, these are the 10 conclusions that Anglican theologians have drawn from time immemorial. It's more of a sensibility or an approach. Um, and I see that this, this, the relationship of scripture tradition and reason slash wisdom um, that, you know, Richard Hooker articulates so well. And you think about what he was facing, right? The Puritans are saying, Hey, this reformation in England, it did not go far enough. We need to purify it even more. These things that we're doing in worship, they're not biblical. You know, there's no biblical warrant for them. How, how can you do X, Y, and Z in your worship? And he, he writes seven volumes to answer that question. And everything that he's doing is scripture, tradition, and reason scripture, scripture as the top of the triangle, the norm that norms everything else. But the church has been wrestling with that scripture from the beginning. And that wrestling comes out in the tradition, in the democracy of the dead, however you want to talk about that, the communion of the saints, those who have gone before, those who have wrestled through th these things before. And our approach to scripture, they're already, we're joining a conversation that's already been happening. And that's something that, that Hooker realized and that I think the Anglican sensibility realizes about theology is, yeah, you can go to the tradition and maybe kind of make whatever argument you want. It really is a sensibility more than it is trying to find a slam dunk argument. But it's, are you willing to listen? Are you willing to listen to those who have actually thought about this a little bit longer than you have? And then the question of reason, which can be a difficult word for us because we live on this side of the enlightenment and it sort of means one thing. Um, it means sort of scientific, logical approach to things. And, and Hooker meant something more full-bodied, more like what we would mean by wisdom um, because every situation is unique in a certain sense. It's There's not always a one-to-one -one historical 
analogy and you, you have to kind of play the conditions of the road. So Hooker understood that. So you start with scripture, you enter in the conversation with those who have been in conversation with the scripture, and then you bring in what's, what are the, what are the real world ground level issues related to this reason, wisdom, and that conversation sort of produces your theological, um, it's a, that's the theological disposition that I think marks Anglican theology. Um, additionally, it being sort of rooted in our liturgy, our prayer and things like that as well, because, and, and that's one reason I was attracted to the Anglican tradition is because theology and spirituality are less separated in our tradition than in other traditions. Not that we don't kind of fall into that dichotomy sometimes, right? but because of the prayer book tradition, because we pray our theology, spirituality and theology have a little bit more of a, a natural relationship. Well, let me ask you a personal question. I, I know you didn't grow up in an Anglican church or the Anglican tradition. So was it the way Anglican theology is done or was it, what, what was it that drew you away from that tradition into an Anglican tradition? And, you know, you're currently pursuing your PhD and obviously you you've committed your life to this pursuit. So what was that one hinging sort of moment that said, yeah, this is something worth pursuing for me. And, and in the Anglican tradition, I think um, through Anglicanism coming for the first time to encounter the idea of the faith handed down, um, encountering the idea of the one Holy Catholic and apostolic church and that the communion of saints is not just something we say in the creed, <laughs> right? That, yeah. That, yeah. that there is, are these, those who, there is a great cloud of witnesses and they have things to teach us and we can learn from them. Um, and that that all being rooted in a liturgical framework and a prayer book tradition. Um, just, I think I had an instinct from the beginning that there wasn't a division between the spirituality and the theology even if I couldn't have put that, those words on it. Um, right. The cat I'm doing, you know, doctoral work on a Catholic theologian, Hans Urs von Balthasar, but that's one of his, that's one of the drums he beats over and over and over again is that theology and sanctity go together and that we separate them at our detriment. Um, and I think that the Anglican tradition, whether they would, wh- whether we would say it explicitly like that or not has, has the resources to, not divide theology and sanctity, not to divide spirituality and uh, theology. So that was what attracted me. That's great. That's great. It's, it's, I think it is so rich. And, um, you know, I think my experience was going into seminary, looking at it as something to get through um, versus something to appreciate and discover the depths of, and I would say my love of Anglican theology has grown since I've graduated from seminary. Almost um, in spite of seminary. <laughs> in spite of seminary, exactly. Well, which is a, a, a transition for me to say, well, what what then would you say to you know your parish priest, front lines of ministry? He, he's heard what you've said, and he's not going to disagree. You know, theology matters. He's going to say, I love the Anglican ap- approach. But what does that mean for him? What are we recommending 
um, to the parish priest. We said that there was a separation between sort of the uh, local and the parish base and, you know, practical from the academy and the ethereal and, you know, the concepts. Um, let's try to bring it down. Where, what, does a, what does a parish presbyter, what does that look like for him as an, as an individual? What, what are we saying to him that he might do, think, be? Um, what are we recommending? Yeah, I think the the first thing is, you know, I think the innate recognition that we're already all always doing theology. <laughs> right. And sort of taking, I mean, even just taking five minutes to step back and journal, who are the three thinkers that have most influenced me in my Christian formation? You know, what, what writers, speakers, pastors have most influenced me? And I think that that could provide an enormous, uh, it's an enormous resource to start a journey because you're, you're already thinking about what you connect with in the tradition. The tradition is huge, you know, so it's not, well, I'm going to prescribe to everyone regardless of their circumstances and regardless of their personality, you need to go read all of city of God and you can't do anything else until you finished it. That's not realistic. And that is not going to work. So I think starting small, um, I've, there's a book called Tiny Habits by B.J. Fogg that's about behavior change. And one of the things that he said, it's he calls it the flossing one tooth idea, <laughs> is that you break down a habit to its smallest component, and then you tell yourself, that's all I have to do. So I put my floss by my toothbrush, and I tell myself, all I have to do is brought, floss one tooth, and then I've accomplished my goal. <laughs> well, nine times out of ten, you're not just going to floss one tooth you're going to floss all your teeth. It's just putting that low bar. So it's thinking about, I would encourage people to think about like, okay, there's, there's already a book on my shelf. I bought it. You know, somebody told me that Fleming Rutledge's crucifixion was great. It looks really long. (laughs) There are 90 page chapters in that. How am I going to, okay. Say after I finish my quiet time today, I'm going to read one page. That's a tiny habit version of trying to, and it's already sitting there on your shelf. You've already decided that that might be a good thing for you to. So I, I think it's starting where maybe you I are. read, I read one page and then it's two and then maybe it's yeah. three. And, then- and it's not like, okay, I have to order, you know, all the church fathers that take up three shelves and I'm going to get through all of them by next quarter. That's not going to happen. Yeah. I think you're hitting on a habit that a lot of people start off and they intend to do something, you know, Hey, I want to, I need to brush up on my theology, what's out there. And and we start and then we can get frustrated. Like I couldn't get to that book or maybe I couldn't quite understand it. And I'm certainly not going to admit that to anybody. Um, but we, we run into these hurdles, you know, time hurdles, you know, maybe even comprehension hurdles. Sure. Um, and then, and frankly, prioritizing it, you know, because if the funeral is going to happen and the next sermon's going to happen and the person's in the hospital and, you know, you got the vestry meeting, you know, I'm not going to show up to that, you know, without being prepared. Sure. So where, what, what, what usually goes and it's, it's that kind of work. Yeah. And I think that the, 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 in the, the, the butt in the seat version of the division between theology and practicality happens in that moment mm-hmm. because we start to believe that my, my reading of the tradition or my diving into these topics doesn't actually make me better at doing the funeral. 
doesn't make me better at leading the vestry because I'm leading, I'm leading with the cloud of witnesses behind me. You know, it, I have that confidence coming in that I'm not alone. Other people have faced these issues. They've gone through this. Um, so I think that's part of it, but I also think not having any shame related to wherever you are or, you know, where you think you should be. And, uh, this is something my dissertation advisor said to me, she said, let pleasure be your guide. So Mm. there are things that you already like, (laughs) there's something, there's something in the tradition you've already connected with for sure. I mean, I don't, a lot of people in our stream, they've come into the Anglican world you know, they've chosen it. So asking that question, well, who was it? You know, what, what thinker, what writer, what theologian, what pastor, what preacher, um, and going back to those things. And then the principle of what I, what's called reading upstream of the, it's like, well, what did they read? What was important to them? Right. What are they referencing? Yeah. So, yeah. You know, Tim Keller, he, he reads stuff up at this level. So if you want to be like Tim Keller, (laughs) Go read what Tim Keller reads, not just read Tim Keller. Does that make sense? Makes As, perfect sense, yeah. And, you know, in the Christian tradition, eventually all roads lead to Augustine or Aquinas. Or, but just to say, to say by, you know, fiat, I'm going to, I have to start with Aquinas or it doesn't matter. So I'm not going to do anything. Right. Well, that's probably not going to work um, because Aquinas is tough. But if, if you, if somebody you love reads, read something, and then you keep reading upstream, then maybe eventually you're going to get to Aquinas or Augustine and you're going to come to it on your own terms instead of somebody else's terms. And there's a book that um, a literature professor at Baylor, Alan Jacobs, it's called The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction. And he talks about this, you know, letting pleasure being your guide, reading at whim and reading upstream of the things that you already like. Um, it, and it not being super prescriptive, I think is so, because the last thing a pastor needs is more stuff to do. Um, right. If you come away from this thinking like, well, Chris thinks I should, you know, go read De Trinitate by Augustine by the end of this week, or I'm not doing it right. It, that's, that's not it at all. It's, there's a delight to be had, you know, there's a pleasure in it. And approaching it from that standpoint of asking yourself, like, what have I enjoyed? So maybe somebody likes a historical theology. Maybe somebody really likes biographies. Well, if you read a Jonathan Edwards biography, you'd get a lot of theology out of that. Uh, And you'd also learn how he lived his life. So it doesn't have to be one thing. I love that, that sort of, you know, the, the Lord gives you, you know, the delight of your heart. But there probably was a pleasure that we that we all you know we didn't get into this just because we wanted this job. We had a pleasure, and there was a pleasure in some theology, and it's reconnecting with that pleasure versus seeing it as another prescriptive thing that I got to do to be better at my job, and you know, and feeling like you said the shame over it or the guilt or the whatever. How do I get back to that pleasure? But it, it does seem like, and I get that it's integrated, but it does seem like there. There's there is some sort of commitment um, or rhythm or habit where you know even if the habit is hey I want to enjoy reading yeah. for thirty minutes a day like yeah. and help me understand what that might look like and you know and then I, so I think that's good and then I guess the other thing 
um, is I think a lot of people don't know where to start. Um, yeah. and I, and so I think I like that idea. It's like, well, what, what do you already like? Who are the three guys that you already do like, you know, that's a starting point. And then the upstream helps me kind of as a guy yeah. like, and this is where I could go next. Um, yeah. Think about the, the book that you last connected with really. And dig through the footnotes, dig through the bibliography in that book, because those are the things that were upstream of that. Um, and chances are you're going to connect with that. And then if you, once you do that three or four times, then you've, you've already, you've opened yourself up to a whole other you know, yeah. world. And, and I think, you know, part of it is um, there's a book called the intellectual life by a Dominican guy in the early 20th century. Um, and he talks about the spirit and habits and methods of the intellectual life. Um, and I would make the argument that that's not just some special vocation for some pastors. I think all, all of us as pastors on some level, because we are engaged in the reading and the teaching of word. I mean, those are the vows that we took as priests that we would teach the word of God and that we would rightly handle it. Um, we're all called to some level to the intellectual life and, and part of what he talks about is, you know, getting honest about how much energy you have, how you're expending it. Right. And, and being able to make some trims and some cuts. So, you know, simple example, if you've read the pastor by Eugene Peterson, he would literally block off time as a meeting with his reading. So he would put on his calendar Dostoevsky or because I'm, I'm meeting with this person. And it's, it's the same thing as me going to a coffee. So part of it is just, what is my mental framework? Right. That's good. That's a good practical example. And let me switch. Let me, let me just push this down the road a little bit. So we've talked a little bit about as an individual pastor, here's some habits. How then does that show up in the life of a parish? If, if you're, if I'm pursuing this, how do I model? What does that look like? How do I pass this? on to the congregation and, and let me just ask what, what, it, what might be you doing in yeah. that area? What, give me, can you give me some examples of how that, you know, comes out the other side? In yeah. The life of the parish? So when I was on staff at All Saints Dallas, we started something called beer and theology and we would do uh, kind of public lectures basically around theological topics um, in a pub. And then we would have Q and a time and all that sort of thing. So that's, that's one way to do it is just to like, Hey, theologies, we're going to talk about, um, we did a series on truth, beauty, and goodness. We did a series on, um, Anglican poets. Uh, th- there's any number of ways you can do it. Right. Yeah. Um, now at St. Pa- doing it, I mean, it's going to then actually fuel my desire to do the theological work. If I'm going to be standing up teaching. in front of somebody, I'm thinking, Hey, yeah. I, I'm, I'm compelled to think through this deeply because I'm going to, if I'm going to answer questions, you know, I'm going to want to be prepared. That's good. I like that. So now at St. Bart's, we do something called public theology, um, emphasis on pub. So there's still drinking involved. Okay, good. Um, Beer out of there. But the idea behind that is, you know, the, the church has always had three things at the heart of catechism, which is the apostles creed, the Lord's prayer and the 10 commandments. Um, and there's a series of books on each of those three topics. They're a little, they're about a hundred pages each. We took one of those books a month and, um, that we had 
we met at a restaurant and we took two hours to have a table discussion about each one of those books. So the way that I think about catechism is the creed gives us a, a grammar and a framework for theology. The Lord's prayer gives us a grammar and a framework for spirituality. And the 10 commandments gives us a grammar and a framework for ethics. And the Christian life is about what we believe, how we belong and how we behave. And the Christian tradition has gone wrong when it is majored on one to the exclusions of the others. So we, you know, we all know the churches that Christianity is all about believing. Right. We know the churches that it's all about behaving yep. and we know where it's all just about belonging, but it's all goes together. And the, the catechism has that built in um, reality. And one of the reasons that we wanted to do this is I want to be able to have theological conversation with people, but when you're learning to speak a new language, you have to learn the vocabulary and the grammar of it in order to speak in that language. Um, It makes a lot of sense. And the faith has said, this is the vocabulary and the grammar of theology, spirituality, and ethics is the creed, the Lord's prayer and uh, the 10 commandments. So just as a practical example, when we had a conversation around the 10 commandments, we started talking about bearing false witness. And in the book, um, Peter light, it's Peter Lightheart's book on the 10 commandments. He talks about social media. What does it mean to have true words on social media? So you want to talk about, yeah, you, you want to talk about a cash out practical thing that, that people wrestle with every day. How am I going to treat this person that I disagree with? Um, how am I going to react to that? I could, I could flame them. I could throw facts at them. I could do all these things. What am I going to do? How am I going to use my words? Am I going to say true things about them? Um, and that, that's just a very practical example of, you know, we wouldn't have had that conversation otherwise. And it's grounded in what the church has always said is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. So that's just a, that's one thing we're doing is this public theology. Um, Chris, that is great. And I, I want to thank you. But, and before we close, I'm gonna, I want to ask you a question, which is your last thoughts, but also can you commit to giving me some of these resources that you mentioned and we'll get them up on the website and maybe some of these, uh, some books that might be a good place to start. Um, and so people who, you know, have a resource, uh, want to look at some of these resources you mentioned, we will have that, uh, hooked up to the website as well. So absolutely. Yeah. And then happy to do that. last thoughts, what's your last, what would your last words of encouragement or, um, what would you say to, uh, Anglican pastors across the, the country? I think I want to reemphasize that this is not another should, and it's not another burden that I want to place on people to say, you know, be like me, I figured it out. I right. think it's an invitation into the great tradition. And I think that for, whether you would say it this way or not, most people come into the Anglican fold because that's part of the appeal is that there's a connection to the great tradition. And one of the ways that we relate to that part of the community of the saints is through our reading and our thinking. Um, and that that is not severed from our spiritual life. That it that it can that they can mutually nourish each other and must mutually nourish each other, and that that to me is the delight of doing theology. And if you find a theologian dry and you don't understand them, don't assume that you are the problem, <laughs> because some theologians are dry 
and very difficult to understand and perhaps impossible to understand. So I would say throw that book across the room and pick a different book. My pleasure be your guide. Chris, thank you again. Thank you guys for joining us in the Living Classroom. And uh, we'll uh, we'll have Chris back again and we'll dive into some deeper uh, specific things. But again, thank you, Chris. We, uh, we appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye now. Thank you for joining us today in the Living Classroom. For more information about the Living Classroom community, please visit us at thelivingclassroom.org. Until next time, blessings.